While God created the world, the morning stars sang together. After God delivered Israel through the Red Sea, Moses and Miriam led the people in singing. God destroyed Israel's enemies under King Jehoshaphat while the choir sang. When Jesus was born, the angels sang, and before going to the cross, he sang. God rejoices over us with singing, and one of the only things we know for certain that everyone will be doing in heaven is singing. At New St. Andrews College, we understand that music is not an elective. It is central to our being and identity. We endeavor to train all our students in a joyful and robust musical literacy that will help them shape culture in a Christ-like direction wherever they go. Additionally, we offer the Certificate of Music in conjunction with our bachelor's degree in liberal arts and culture for students who desire extra music training beyond the regular music courses they will take as a part of the core curriculum. In the certificate program, you won't simply appreciate music or listen to it or talk about it. You will do music. You will study it, analyze it, read it, write it, sing it, and play it. You will receive private instruction in your primary instrument as well as secondary lessons in voice, piano, conducting, and other instruments. You will receive a solid foundation in music theory and analysis. You will study music history, church music, and music pedagogy. And when you graduate, you will leave with the ability to sing, play, understand, and steward music in whatever church or community you plant yourself. I'm Dr. David Erb, and this is the Certificate of Music at New St. Andrews College. So from the outset of my talk, I'm, I'm just gonna grant you from the beginning, it's a little odd on where I'm starting and then where I'm gonna end. And I think part of why I want to do this is because I want to emphasize here the need to be students not only of God's word, which is primary in all of our lives, but also to be students of culture and politics. Um, if we believe that politics is downstream from culture and culture is downstream from the church, then we need to be aware of the whole river and not just our favorite fishing hole. And that's kind of where the church has largely been at in the last 40 years. Now, I generally, when I kind of talk about um, church and politics, I generally am referencing my era. I've been, I was born in 79, I'm 43 years old. So that's usually what I'm referring to. And I know there's a whole bunch of history to why we've gotten here, um, but I'm specifically gonna be referencing things that's happened in the last 40 years because I wanna connect some dots. Now. I believe God is in the process of tearing down some idols that we have built up over decades and centuries here in America. And God shakes things. It says in Hebrews that God shakes things so that things that he wants to remain will remain. That's what God does. The Christian foundations of our nations are decaying. I, I think it's obvious to most of us. And the rot has basically permeated every key structural pier. We have largely departed from our Christian foundations which has opened the door to a massive slippery slope into sexual insanity. We went from no-fault divorce in 1969, that was Ronald Reagan, who, who pushed that in California and later regretted it, uh, to homosexuals advocating for same-sex civil unions. That began, that first state that passed civil unions was Vermont in 2000. And by the time we got to Obergefell in 2015, the moral state of decline was at warp speed. The, Democratic talking points couldn't even keep up with the sexual immoral, uh, the sexual zeitgeist, the sexual changes, the sexual ethics that were happening. Every two months, the Democratic talking points had to be updated. You mean to tell me that men can have babies now? Guess gotta make that a Democratic talking point. 
Just two months after Obergefell dropped and right on cue, the polygamous, the polygamous people in Utah and in Nevada were complaining. Two months after Obergefell dropped. And, and then later on, the judge in Utah that had, the, I think, the, the challenge, the, the polygamy challenge in Utah said, well, if Obergefell changed, why, why can't we include polygamous marriages now? That, was, that happened in Utah. And now after over a century of Darwinian indoctrination, we have finally reached peak enlightenment and realized that the possibilities of evolution are endless. You know, oh, ye of little faith here. If a monkey can evolve into a man over time, why can't a high school student identify as a cat? Or, or, or a man become a woman? Or why can't Dave Rubin practice eugenics by selecting eggs, the womb, the color of the hair, the color of the eyes, and store up breast milk in multiple freezers? It sounds insane. If that sentence I would have said just five years ago, we all would have been like, nah. Now, George Bush, I'm going to, I want to talk about the church pandemic, but I I specifically want to maybe highlight some political uh, things that have happened under the Bush administration, compare it to what happened under COVID, and then um, come to my conclusion. So George Bush was elected in 2000, and when he was elected, he had the majority in both the House and the Senate. So the conservative party, the Republican party, had the majority in the House and the Senate when he was elected. Uh, We were attacked by Islamic terrorists in September 11, 2001, and we are now in an era where younger voters, 18 to 23-year-olds, never experienced the Twin Towers. Our next voting population never experienced the Twin Towers, and and that a 9-11 moment. We tend to remember George Bush presidency marked by the fall of the Twin Towers and then the um, economic crisis that happened in 2006, 2007. That's kind of the big things. There's a bunch of other things we, of course, remember George Bush's presidency by, but those are really two big things that stick out. But his presidency was far more problematic, I think, than we realize, and I believe set us up for the failure of the COVID pandemic that we experienced in 2020. Bush was an evangelical darling, and the church, I think, refused to hold him accountable because he was such an evangelical darling for, um, for the evangelicals. Um, as a side note, one of the things, if I'm in a shocking mood, I like to tell people my, the two worst presidents in the history of the United States was Abe Lincoln and George Bush. It's a fun one. So, so now... There's three things I think that are that happen under the Bush presidency that I think specifically connect to um, how we experience COVID and how the government handled COVID. Number one, and this is um, you know small things happen and and you you don't understand the great impact that they that that is going to occur twenty years down the road, but in Uh, Social distancing, the concept of social distancing came out of the Bush administration in 2006 and 2007. Um, Bush, just getting over, uh, just uh, the avian flu happened, I think in around 2005, 2006. And it initially, I think was spooky and spooked the administration. And so what happened was they put together, um, they assigned a couple doctors. One was from the Department of Veterans and the other one was actually on his White House task force. Um, And he was a White House advisor both politicians, basically. And through their research, researching the Spanish flu and researching um, uh, pandemics and so forth, 
and including uh, using a high schooler's report out of Sandia Labs, New Mexico, where she had put together a model that basically the model kind of verified that social distancing might be able to stop a pandemic. That's where that, that's where that concept came from was a high schooler's report. You can, um, this has been reported on, this is, you know, the Bush administration and the doctors basically used the Spanish flu and used the high schoolers, you know, um, uh, CDC, not, uh, excuse me, um, pandemic model, which created the initial concept for social distancing. Now, we don't quite know where we got the six feet from um, because there's no scientific report um, for standing six feet apart, but that's where social distancing came from uh, and became part of it, kind of the embedded administration's understanding of how we're going to deal with future pandemics, which started in 2006, 2007. And I'm just going to read uh, a quote from this, this lady's report here, um, this, this high schooler's report. And she, um, um, multiple people have actually reached out to her to interview her, and she's refused all interviews, which I understand. Why are you using my high school report for this? Uh, by way of her computer model, she discovered that school kids come into contact with about 140 people a day, more than any other group. This is from her report. Based on that finding, her program showed that in a hypothetical town of about 10,000 people, 5,000 would be infected during a pandemic if no measures were taken. But only 500 people would be infected if schools were closed. Why did we close down schools? High school report. Here's the concept. This concept eventually led to that whole six feet social distancing thing. And then that social distancing six feet principle came to you at the recommendation of the CDC to your states through emergency orders, through some sort of law, through some sort of voodoo emergency order that incompetent Inslee, you know, uh, came up with here in Washington. And of course, he asked for the scientific study, why six feet? No one can give you that. During the time, number two, that happened in 2006, and, and we're, we reaped the benefits greatly in 2020 because of that. During the time Bush had both the majority in the House and Senate, he could have ended abortion, he had the House. He had the Senate. He could have done great things for pro-life. He could have eliminated Department of Education. He could have dealt with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. He had the authority to do that. And remember, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were the basis for the economic downturn in 2007, 2008. And, and, and the Bush administration knew Fannie Mac and Freddie Mae were a problem. Freddie Mae, Fannie Mac, Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae. I followed it in my head. But instead, he did not deal any major blow to abortion. He didn't... Um, he instead he doubled the part, Department of Education funding, and in in two thousand that was one of his no child left behind was one of his big things that conservatives passed doubling the Department of Education funding. He also violated our Fourth Amendment rights with the signing of the Patriot Act. The Patriot Act dramatically expanded the surveillance state on our own citizens by creating the theater security agency known as the TSA. The TSA now has about 45,000 employees, and somehow conservatives have a problem with Biden hiring 87,000 IRS agents. Those conservatives passed, gave us 45,000 Fourth Amendment violators. And conservatives are now, you know, pushing back the Biden administration about hiring 87,000 IRS agents. What basis? Now, lastly, and I think this is something that Pastor Wilson pointed out to me, um, I started, I moved to Moscow in 2002. Um, uh, I was there for a little bit in 2001, but fully moved to Moscow in 2002. 
and uh, the Twin Towers had fallen. I remember Pastor Wilson's sermon uh, after the Twin Towers and kind of pointing this out, that the last thing that Bush did uh, that I think has significantly impacted us today was the National Cathedral, the National Worship Service at the National Cathedral just week, a week or so after the Twin Towers fell. And this, this was egregious. This really was. And, I, it, for, and the evangelical church refused to call them out on it. You know, at that service, they included the Jewish rabbi, the Muslim cleric, a woman presiding over that worship service, and cap it all off, Billy Graham preached the gospel without calling out the idolatrous worship service right in front of him. How could you preach the gospel with not calling out idolatry right in front of you? And Bush got all the evangelicals across the U.S. to sign off to that national worship service, thinking like this was a moment of unity. If I'm convinced if Biden or Obama or you know, Bill Clinton would have done that national worship service, evangelicals would have been crying foul, saying, what are you doing involving a Muslim cleric in our Christian worship service? But because Bush was an evangelical, evangelical darling, he could get away with it. Now, about six months before COVID hit, I remember interviewing uh, Nate Wilson, and this still kind of haunts me, actually. And he said, we were interviewing him, talking about President Trump and just kind of how crazy things were. And and he said, things are about to get crazier. This is before COVID hit, about, uh, I think, three to six months before COVID hit. And Nate was saying, things are about to get crazier because a, a fall always comes after pride. And if there's anything we could kind of mark President Trump with was, you know, he had a big ego, big pride. And Nate was just saying, I'm just looking at the tea leaves and I think it's going to get crazier because I haven't seen Trump fall yet. And Nate didn't have any details. He is just kind of a, a tea leaf moment for Nate. And then 2020 COVID insanity hit and things got crazier. I remember watching President Trump's time in office roll out over the first couple of years, and I couldn't imagine anything crazier happening, and Nate was saying things are going to get crazier. Then um, God said, hold my beer. Now, what I want to highlight here is the connection between George Bush's presidency and, and, and the wins that conservatives thought they were accomplishing during his administration and how they've come back to bite us in 2020. When the conservatives thought we were cleaning house with George Bush, you know, George Bush was in there cleaning house. We had the house in the Senate. Oh, we can accomplish all this. We're cleaning house and getting rid of that one demon. What ended up actually happening after we cleaned the house out, we actually made more room for more demons. That's, that's what ended up happening. So in a lot of ways, George Bush administration set us up for the massive government overreach that we experienced in 2020. And a church that was wholly incapable of responding faithfully to this moment. And I think they were wholly incapable. Um, one of the major reasons is because they were already so compromised by giving the George Bush a stamp of approval and not seeing through some of the egregious things that were happening under that conservative administration. Now, number one, okay, think about this. George Bush's administration is, okay, so how does George Bush administration kind of apply to, to our COVID moment in 2020? George Bush administration is the one that adopted the social distancing policies, as I already referenced, and, and the CDC, use those policies to recommend every, recommend every state to implement those policies. Mothers were arrested at parks. Pastors were arrested in Florida. Gym owners were arrested. One gym owner in New Jersey um, uh, got harassed by the cops so much. 
he finally, the cops were going to say, the cops said, hey, we're going to come and, and chain up your doors so no one could get into your gym. So he just took the doors off. So the cops couldn't chain it. So he ended up getting a, I think, a, ended up racking up about a million dollars in fines uh, through all this. All, all in the name of social distancing or wearing a mask or whatever. But pot shops, abortion mills, strip clubs were legally open in California while John MacArthur was fighting millions of dollars in fines. And that all happened because the Bush administration thoughtlessly adopted a social distancing policy from a high school report from his two political doctors in his administration. Secondly, George Bush doubled the Department of Education. I mentioned that. So how, do, how does George Bush's presidency apply to 2020? George Bush doubled the Department of Education, which has been the training ground for liberal theology, sex, sexual ethics, uh, the pornification of our children, and for getting parents to comply, actually. How come so many parents complied in 2020? Because all the public schools shut down. They had no choice. They had to take care of their kids. They were neutralized. Parents were neutralized, had to take care of their kids. The public schools shut down, and they had to do this. And that's because the Department of Education was doubled under President Bush. The budget was doubled under, and all this infrastructure had built up over you know, the 15 years, uh, 16 years since the Bush administration under a doubled Department of Education, no child left behind. They shut down schools, and the parents had no choice. And, and part of this also is... If you listen to the government for 40 years, you're just going to do what the government tells you to do when things get a little sketchy. And that's what we've done. And then in addition to this, the TSA, I think, conditioned us for decades not be concerned about our Fourth Amendment violations. For decades. Which is why cops in New York would walk into Jewish residents' house who were throwing parties. They'd walk inside and get them to shut down their party. That's a Fourth Amendment violation. Do you all got a warrant? Nope. But we have COVID. I need to shut down this party. And Fourth Amendment violations just got, we got rough, ran roughshod over us in 2020. Everyone was a criminal if you weren't social distancing. Everyone was a criminal if you weren't wearing a mask. Everyone, everyone was a criminal because you might have COVID. Follow the logic there. The, the, you're convicted, you're basically a criminal unless you can prove otherwise that you don't have COVID. And then if you can prove you don't have COVID through whatever the fake test that they gave you, rapid antigen and so forth, whatever the test they gave you, then, okay, you don't have COVID, but you still got to wear a mask and stand six feet apart. I remember one of the most goofy moments for me in the pandemic um, was uh, my sister-in-law got married down. Uh, she married a Camp Crusade guy down in uh, Mexico City. We go down to Mexico City for the, for the wedding. And then before you get on the plane to come back into the U.S., this wasn't a, a Mexican uh, 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 the country of Mexico, it wasn't their policy. This is a U.S. policy. To get back into the U.S., you either had to be vaccinated or you had to have your uh, COVID test 24 hours before departure. So 24 hours before departure, you know, we got to pay the people to come to our hotel room, test me, my wife, and the kids, and stick the thing up their nose. And, and, and they did the test. A couple hours later, I get an email saying my plane had been delayed. And so I had to call the test back again because my plane had been delayed outside that 24-hour period. So I had to call the test again, and I'd have, my whole family had to get tested again, and we were still leaving the next day. It was just outside of that 24-hour period. And then we go and get on the plane, and they say, everyone needs to wear a mask. 
So everyone on that plane had been vaccinated or been tested in 24 hours, my family twice, and they still had to wear a mask. You're, you're, you're just guilty no matter what. And that's why it was so easy for the Fourth Amendment violations to occur. Now, lastly, and I think this is more centrally to the church's issue here. The church did not fully, did not do its duty and call out the idolatrous nature of the National Cathedral Worship Service. And now we have all sorts of idolatry running rampant in the church. We had an easy moment there. There was, a, there was an easy moment for the church to point this out. But the church was jammed on that moment. People died, sadness, we can't, you know, unity, you know. And the church did not do its duty faithfully. And so no wonder all the churches shut down because we'd already been listening to the government for the longest time. And so the church easily was willing to obey Caesar instead of Jesus as king. Now, one of the most striking metaphors that I came across during the COVID insanity was that the second crime scene is always worse than the first. This is very helpful. Pastor Wilson brought this to our attention early on on our show. The, 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 uh, second, the, the, the second crime scene is always worse than the first. So if someone comes and you're walking down the street and they grab you and throw you in the van, that's a bad crime scene, but it, it's not going to be worse than the second one coming. The second one coming is probably going to be out in the desert and you're six feet under. So if you don't throw down at the first crime scene, well, now you got problems coming. Now you got the second crime scene, third crime scene, whatever. Everything's going to escalate from there. In this illustration, the first crime scene, this is, again, I, I think there's actually, you could break this down in different ways and I'm fine with it, but um, I'm going to break it down this way. The first crime scene was fathers giving their children over to uh, to be educated by, the, by our public school system. I think that was the first crime scene, pretty easy one. The second crime scene was the church abandoning the public square. That's been going on for decades. Um, uh, the third crime scene was the political idea that the public square was neutral. The third crime scene neutralized us. The fourth crime scene was the failure of conservatives to lead when they had the majority. I'm giving you the example of, of the Bush administration. We had an opportunity to really change the course in our nation and we didn't, we spent more money. And then the fifth crime scene was the National Cathedral Idolatrous Worship Service. And then finally, the sixth crime scene is COVID insanity. And like I said, I think there's a, a number of ways you can actually break this down in more detail um, to get there. But I just wanted to illustrate, like when we uh, do not, oh, when we do not fill, fulfill the duties that God's given us, that first crime scene, that second crime scene, it's only gonna build from there. And then it gets, and then it gets harder to stand up as those crime scenes build up, the stakes get higher and it gets harder for us to stand up as Christians. You know, think of, think of China. If you stand up as a Christian, those stakes are high. But because somewhere along the way, they had multiple crime scenes to get to where Pastor Yang Wei is in prison. While I believe there's a lot of responsibility you can pin on the family and particularly fathers regarding the decline of our nation, I want to focus on the church for this discussion. If you look at the general landscape of the church here in America, American theology is really bad. I mean, it's just, it, our theology is just nationwide, aggregated up. Our American theology is just bad. It is confused, it's incoherent, and its orthopraxy is um, almost indefensible. I can't, I can't find Bible verses for why we're doing certain things here in the American church. I just can't. Our, our, our practice of what it means to be a Christian in the church 
is not lining up with, with scriptures. In the midst of vast failures we could, we could discuss and point out in all this, I believe the linchpin that started everything to unravel was the church's rejection of the sovereignty of God as it pertains to the kingship of Christ. As Toby was saying, if Jesus is Lord over heaven and earth, then we need to report to that king. I understand that generally in America, large denominations and evangelicals have tended to sign off to the theological concept that God is sovereign. We, we generally, I think, would sign off to it. Most churches would sign off to it at some level. But we've kind of boxed that doctrine into our heads, into our hearts, and into our, our four walls of our church. That's largely where it's been kept. Uh, and the influence of, of that kind of thinking uh, is, is um, the way the church has become to view the sovereignty of God has been very Gnostic. We think Jesus is sovereign, um, you know, God's sovereign in our hearts, in our minds, but, but when it comes to the real, tangible, earthy kingship of Christ, we've really disconnected the sovereignty of God to what it practically means in this world. And, and I'm surprised over, over the years of doing cross-politics just how much Gnosticism has impacted um, our, our church how much Gnosticism has impacted our theology. Uh, to paraphrase Abraham Kuyper, there's not one square inch in this world where Jesus is not king. All right, Jesus is king over all the square inches. There's not one, one square inch where it's reserved for, you know, government or reserved for, you know, uh, Putin or Biden or whatever. And if God is sovereign over everything, then any human authority is derived authority. It's Toby already mentioned some of this. And, you know, any human authority, Romans 1, any, uh, Romans 11, any human authority is derived of authority. So dad's authority is derived. Where did it come from? It came from God. You know, um, Governor Inslee's authority, where did it come from? Well, it came from the Constitution, but where did the Constitution's authority came from? It comes from God. You, you, you go all the way up. President Trump, you know, Putin, Biden, where, where does your, who's your, who are you ultimately reporting to? God. If Jesus is king, all these all these people are ultimately reporting to God. The government has a derived authority. And, and, and that derived authority is a defined authority. It's a limited and, res, and restricted authority. And the terms of conditions are set by King Jesus. Sure, your, your governor you know, has to abide by the Constitution, but what's the highest authority in this world? One of my life goals is to reclaim what it means to be truly conservative. Um, the foundation of what it means to be truly conservative is basic. It, Jesus is Lord. That's the foundation of what it means to be truly conservative. The Republican Party needs to, it, you know, um, the Christian God, Judeo, as they call it, Judeo um, uh, ethics, Judeo-Christian um, morality, that's the basis of, largely the basis of the Republican platform, and uh, I would say probably more like a name only, um, uh, but what it means to be truly conservative, what it should mean to be truly Republican, is that Jesus is Lord. When we started Cross Politics in 2016, our goal was to specifically proclaim the lordship of Jesus over politics. Um, I remember growing up, I was born in 1979, grew up in Texas, was around kind of the good old Southern Baptist world, good old Southern Presbyterian world. And there was a huge disconnect between what I was taught in the church and how people were kind of, and how Christians were kind of interacting with the world. What had happened was, is because we detached theology, we detached the sovereign of God, the kingship of Christ, from what it practically meant to this world, 
and pastors refused to teach his congregation on how to apply the Bible to politics and culture, what happened was, is well, um, the real world, you know, your sheep go out into the real world and they have real problems. They need to know who to, they need to know how should I be thinking? What's the biblical qualifications for a political leader? What, how should I be thinking about this law? Does the government have authority to do this in our city, um, biblically speaking? But the church wasn't teaching that. And so Glenn Beck and Rush Limbaugh kind of became our political pastors throughout the week. And, and there you go, voila, you've just, you've just disconnected the Bible from conservative principles. And so we have a generation, more than a generation, uh, decades of Christians growing up, listening to Rush Limbaugh, listening to Glenn Beck, and, having, and, and hearing you know, maybe some good political analysis or, or some exciting political analysis on what's going on or whatever, but with no Bible, no Jesus as the foundation of it. And so no wonder, like our politics were all screwed up because the church refused to proclaim the kingship of Christ into politics. And the church refused to proclaim the lordship of Christ in how it should apply to my everyday life. You know, a lot of your congregants are dealing, had to deal with that massively in 2020. You know, do I, do I get vaccinated? My, my work is wanting me to get vaccinated. Do I get vaccinated? You know, all these practical things started popping up. And I know multiple churches that said, um, you know, it's up to you if you want to get vaccinated or not. We aren't going to give our opinion on that. You know, here's, they're just leaving your people out to high and dry, to hang high and dry, as they have to make real world decisions. But the church refused to disciple them in that way. So they're looking for it. They want it but we disconnected it. So I think it, it, it is crucial that we get the kingship of Christ in our blood. We get the kingship of Christ right. And, and the reason why I like to talk about the kingship of Christ in relationship to the sovereignty of God, because it, it, it's, it's earthy. It, it brings the sovereignty of God out of our, out of our head and, and hopefully in, into this world because Jesus is king of this world. And if we don't get this, down in, in all of its glorious application, then we won't, I don't think we'll see clearly because we actually, aren't, in the end, we really aren't seeing Jesus as king clearly. If God is not sovereign over all, then he's not Lord over all. We need to get the sovereignty of God right, which is a proper understanding of the kingship of Jesus. Um, you know, Toby earlier talked about the three spheres. Well, the only way to get the three spheres right, because they're defined, someone defines them. Well, God defines them. God gives us the definitions of the various spheres and their authority. They, he gives them their derived authority. When it comes to the theological understanding of the sovereignty of God, I like to, as I mentioned earlier, I like to use the kingship of Christ because it puts that earthiness in there and, and, that, and, and it pushes hard against that Gnosticism that is, is bleeding all into, creeping all up into our church. Uh, John 18, 37 uh, it says, Pilate therefore said to him, are you then a king? Pilate's asking, Jesus, are you king? And Jesus had no problem. Says, yeah, you, you rightly say that I'm a king. For this cause I was born and for this cause I've come into the world that I should bear witness of that truth. Everyone who's of the truth hears my voice. One of the central themes and the gospel is actually the kingship of Jesus, the kingdom of Jesus. The kingdom is at hand. There are many references to consider, too many to list here. Um, let me just mention a couple. The, king, the kingdom is like a mustard seed. 
Okay, we know it. We know it's coming. We know it's slow. We know it's here, but we know it's growing. Um, the uh, the uh, so we we're called to seek first the kingdom of God. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. We're, we're called to pray for the kingdom to come. And after Jesus' baptism, his first sermon after his baptism was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's Matthew four seventeen. The very act of Jesus casting out demons, and it says in Matthew 12, 28, the very act of Jesus casting out demons says it meant that the kingdom of God had come. So Jesus, the very presence of Jesus casting out demons in Matthew 12, 28 said the kingdom of God is here. Lastly, Jesus ends his earthly ministry by declaring to his disciples that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This means that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, and not only in heaven, but on earth, all authority in heaven and on earth. We don't believe in that Gnostic kingship, that Jesus is only king of spiritual matters. No, we believe that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father now and is ruling over the whole earth until all his enemies are put under his feet. The church has been plagued by Gnosticism, which meant we have bought into the idea that Jesus is king in heaven um, and only over spiritual matters on this earth. The modern church thinks that Jesus, when Jesus returns, at the end of all things, the world's going to go away, it's going to disappear, and all Christians will go up into the fluffy clouds in heaven. But God loved the world so much that he gave his son to die for this world. King Jesus came to die for this world. Our king died for this world. He laid down his life for this world. He did not come to die and grab the faithful few and disappear into heaven. This means God's plan for, sal- for the salvation of the world. It's comprehensive. Um, and, and, say, and I'll just say it in practical terms, um, that more people are going to be saved than go to hell. That's God's plan for this world. That King Jesus is a victorious king. And, and, and the modern view of this is that Jesus is kind of coming. He's going to grab his frozen chosen. He's going to grab his faithful few. And then he's going to take them away. Gnosticism crazy but but also there's so many verses that kind of back up like the meek will inherit the earth if if jesus is going to come and take his faithful away what are they inheriting the meek will inherit the earth the meek are going to inherit the earth jesus is king and he's going to give them the earth and the earth's not going away matthew 12 28 um, through 30 says, I already mentioned some of this, but if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. So the kingdom of God is here. And we, and we know that because Jesus cast out demons. Jesus says, you want to see evidence that the kingdom's here? Okay, I've talked about the mustard seed. That might be a little hard to see right now. It's small. But the evidence that the kingdom is here is because I'm casting out demons. I'm the strong man coming. I'm binding the strong man. Excuse me. I'm binding the strong man, and I'm casting out demons. The kingdom is here. The kingdom, you know, does not, my, my metaphor here, the kingdom does not fully appear like a two-minute microwave at dinner. On the contrary, the kingdom is more like a 12-hour slow-cooked pork shoulder from Texas. This is why we use the phrase, you know, already, but not yet. So we know the kingdom of God is, is here, but like a mustard seed, we don't see it all. It's, it's here, but it's, it's, it's not 
fully realized. It's not yet. And we use that phrase to communicate that the kingdom of God is here, but not fully realized. The kingdom is expanding through his church to the whole world. And it will one day not just be a mustard seed, but a fully developed tree that, that actually covers the whole world. That's the whole you know, I, a metaphor behind the mustard seed. It becomes a vast tree. I actually, um, a couple months ago, I was thinking through the mustard seed concept. So I Googled mustard seeds and trees, mustard trees. And they're actually, they, they, they grow, they're massive. Mustard trees are, are just incredible. And, and they grow in all sorts of amazing shapes. It's actually pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name, which is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So Jesus reigns. uh, um, And of course, in Corinthians, we know that Jesus reigns until all his enemies are put under his foot. I want to bring another verse in and then I want to make some comments on this. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 24, 28, I just referenced. Then Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, he must reign till he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he's put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who puts all things under him is accepted. Jesus is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the son himself will also be made subject to him to put all things under, under him that God may be all in all. But the kingdom of, but the concept of eternal kingdom is not, it's not a new concept to the, to the New Testament. Uh, it, it, this is, a, this is a, you know, a Genesis concept here that this kingdom is coming, that God's building his kingdom here on earth. It actually begins deep in the Old Testament, beginning with creation. Adam was placed in the garden and he was called to rule. He was called to take dominion over his domain. Abraham was lord and ruler over his tribe, his his little kingdom. And even though the reference of king was not explicit, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were kingly prototypes, being the covenant patriarchs of Israel. The judges in Israel also, um, actually, it says in Judges chapter 8, verse 18, the judges in Israel resembled the son of kings. But at the end of Judges, we're reminded that the formation of the role of Judges in Israel was lacking full kingly authority, which was uh, the, kind of the theme of Judges. By that time, um, uh, by the time we get to the book of Samuel, we're starting to see clearly that the theme of eternal kingdom, uh, the full revelation of that theme was, was being realized. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up a seed after you. You will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he, will, if he commits iniquity, I will chastise him with a rod of men and with blows of the son of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul. Whomever I removed from you and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. The book of Kings begins with an imperfect King David passing the baton to his son Solomon and ends up with a pagan nation king, King Nebuchadnezzar. And second, the last chapter in Second Kings is kind of like, you know, Nebuchadnezzar is taking Israel and Judah off or Israel off. And, and you're, you're, um, 
you start with David and you end with King Nebuchadnezzar. I believe King, King Nebuchadnezzar is likely converted, but you, you're kind of left with, you're left hanging there at the end of Second Kings, like, okay, what, what, what's next, God? Well, Jesus. Clearly the earthly kings failed and the need for a perfect eternal king was always God's plan for this earth. Psalm 132, 11, the Lord has sworn into David, he will not turn from it. I will set up upon your throne, the fruit of your body. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon the throne forever. Psalm 2, yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Psalm 110, the Lord has said to me, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord swore to David, and he would not turn from what he swore. This is the beauty of God's covenantal promises. He is the faithful one. He swore to David's sons who will sit on the throne forever. And the only way to accomplish this was for the father to send his son through the line of David to accomplish this end. David understood this when he wrote Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, David understood exactly what was going on with his earthly kingship. The Lord said to my Lord, God the Father, Lord, said to David's Lord, Jesus, sit at his right hand. God's redemptive plan for you, for me, and in this world is through the perfect king, King Jesus. God sent his son into the world to die for this world, and his death and resurrection, the Father granted him that everlasting kingdom. That everlasting kingdom that was that was there, that was understood in the, in the Old Testament. The lordship, the kingship of Christ should be central to the church's mission and to this world and central to proclaiming the gospel to this world. Instead, the church has been, you know, it was supposed to be leading the culture and, and instead we've been maneuvered into the safe space where our political leaders and our cultural battles are not even threatened by the church anymore. Toby gave you know, a, a great example of how the church used to be respected and how the church used to be, um, the minutes used to be kept in, in the newspapers, which is incredible. Uh, but the church, we've been so far outmaneuvered, we've been so, um, you know, paralyzed or put into a box. Uh, all the churches obeyed uh, Governor Inslee very well. All the churches in Idaho, most churches in Idaho obeyed uh, Governor Little well until um, me and a bunch of friends sued the governor for shutting down churches, and then he removed that from his uh, four-stage plan. In Idaho, we had a four-stage plan. It was fantastic. It worked really well. Um, uh, but churches were in that four-stage plan, and all the churches in Idaho, and we're supposed to be like this conservative bastion, most of the church, a lot of the churches uh, followed the orders and shut down, especially in my town. But we sued, and we're able to get that out of his four-stage plan. So the church has little impact in this world. And I think largely the church has little impact in this world is because we don't really believe that Jesus is king of this world. You know, we, we like the messaging. It's, it's, it's great branding. But what we, we, we're, we're very hesitant to apply that to Governor Inslee. We're very hesitant to apply that to the mayor in town, to the, to the sheriff, to, to our political leaders. And we're very hesitant to apply that to the dad that's cheating on his wife. The church refuses, um, I've, um, not to name any churches, but there's been multiple churches that I've been aware of um, in very personal ways where the husband cheats on the wife and the church is there just to console the wife. That's all they do. They're there to console the wife, that's it, and refuse to go confront the husband. That's, that's, not our, that's, 
that's too far. That's getting into business that we, don't, we shouldn't be getting into. And so the church has refused its duty before God. And then no wonder the church is impotent and not even really recognized in society anymore as a, as a leading institution, as an institution that has something to say and an institution that has real public square sway and authority. And it's centrally because I think we've lost, uh, we've lost the faith. We've, we've brought Gnosticism into our view of what Jesus, uh, the Lordship of Jesus means over our earth, over our church, over our families. We don't believe that Jesus is actually king of this earth. You know, the issue is, of, of course, it's not whether we're going to have a king. You know, the issue is who is king? The issue is not whether we're going to have a king, but which king will we serve? You know, serving a king is inevitable. That's what's comical about all this, is we're going to serve. You know, the whole Christian nationalism thing has been kind of funny recently. And I can't help but thinking, you know, well, do I want Christ, uh, na- you know, uh, secular nationalism or Christian nationalism? Because look at what, look what secular nationalism's doing right now. How's that working out for you? You can't even, in 2020, you couldn't even walk down the street without being told to stand six feet apart from each other. Secular nationalism. Secular nationalism is getting us a man can be a woman. Secular nationalism is getting us, you know, 60 million babies dead. And, and we think, the media thinks the threat is Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism's a threat? I, I would much prefer uh, Christian nationalism over whatever secular nationalism you want over me. And, but we've believed, like Israel, that we can serve two masters— we can serve secularism and Jesus at the same time. And we can kind of tip our hat to Jesus while really what we're really doing is we're bowing our knee to secularism. That's what we're really doing. If push comes to shove and you go out in the public square, you're actually, mostly what you're going to see Christians do is actually bow to king secularism. And the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God are not two ships passing in, light, in the night. So that's kind of the, a weird version of two kingdom theology where you got the, the secular, uh, secular, you know, sacred divide. Jesus is the ship coming, and he's going to save everybody. And then you got the kingdom of this world, and they're just going to kind of pass each other in the night. Uh, but that's not what is going to happen. Actually, to just screw up the analogy, Jesus is going to run his ship into the, into the secularism of this world and take over and conquer that ship. That, that's, that's, that's what's happening. It's not, it's not this passing of the night. So if Jesus is king over all the earth, then it's inescapable. It's, it's inescapable. We've got to get that word in our minds. It's inescapable that his kingship applies to every, everyone in every country. And, and it's our duty. It's, our duty is pretty easy in all this. Our duty is just to submit, submit to Jesus. His burden is light. Submit to Jesus, his kingship. And then, and then all we have to do is turn around and proclaim that, that king Jesus to the world. That's our job. That's it. Sometimes we're tested. Sometimes we're put through trial on it. You know, Pastor Yang Wei in, in, in China, sometimes we're, we're persecuted for it. But, that, but Jesus is there. He, King Jesus sees everything that's happening. He sees what Pastor Wang Yi is going to get blessed the socks off in heaven for what he's doing, for being faithful where he's at. And we can barely get Christians to stand against the government here with a $1,000 fine. 
But if we, if we really believe that Jesus is Lord, then nothing can hurt us, right? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. If we really believe that Jesus is Lord, then all we have to do is submit to that. Anything that happens from there, let the chips fall where they may and let, let Jesus bless you because you're, you're being a faithful servant in his kingdom. And all you have to do is turn around and, complain, and proclaim King Jesus to the world. Amen. It is the duty of the free man to resist tyranny at every turn. Every man will either watch his freedom stripped away or take action to protect what he loves. Introducing the A3, the newest revolutionary body armor from Armored Republic. The A3 is the new standard for lightweight multi-hit body armor. A3 plates are incredibly light at 4.6 pounds. The patented design captures fragmentation while remaining multi-hit capable. The A3 will stop up to M80 ball, yet comes in at only 0.7 inches thick. The A3 is the thinnest NIJ.06 compliant or certified composite standalone plate that includes the drop test. The A3 is the first of its kind, patent pending, that combines an alloy strike face with polyethylene backing, revolutionizing body armor technology by providing strength and durability while remaining sleek and maneuverable. The A3 is the new standard in lightweight body armor. The fight against tyranny just got stronger.